On today's episode of the London Lyceum, Brandon and I talk with Dr. Joshua R. Ferris about the topic of substance dualism. Now, this may be uh, beginning material for some of our listeners, and for others, they may have no idea what substance dualism is. So I think this is a great topic to discuss, especially in our own cultural uh, contemporary time frame, where the, the idea and topics on, on human nature kind of rage all over the place. There's discussions um, and debates going on, and people are just trying to figure out what exactly does it mean. So I think this is a really timely episode, really helpful. Uh, Dr. Ferris is going to walk through what is substance dualism, uh, what, is, what are the claims for it, and what are the main arguments in favor of substance dualism. That's where we spend the lion's share of our time trying to understand both philosophical and scriptural evidence in favor of substance dualism. And then uh, we spend some time on some arguments against substance dualism. So we spend most of our time on uh, the objection from a bodily resurrection, as well as talking a little bit about the potential for it to cause us to fall into Nestorianism when it comes to Jesus and the Incarnation. And finally, we talk about if there are any confessional or creedal requirements when it comes to theological anthropology in general. Overall, I think you're really going to enjoy the episode. You'll learn a lot. I know I did. I, I know Dr. Ferris is one of the foremost uh, prolific authors on this subject area, so I think he's a really good resource to talk to about this. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, where we hope to encourage our listeners to think deeply and clearly. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today we're going to be talking uh, about substance dualism with, I think, one of the more accomplished contemporary defenders of it. Uh, it seems like he has a new article or book in the works for every week of the year uh, next year. So maybe only overshadowed by your former doctoral supervisor, Oliver Crisp. So um, we have... If I didn't give it away, if you don't know who that is, it's Joshua Ferris who we're talking to today. Um, if you're not familiar uh, with him, uh, Dr. Ferris, I'll let you introduce yourself just to give a little bit of background on um, maybe who you are, where you're at, and why you became interested in this topic. Good. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks, uh, Jordan and Brandon, for having me on. Uh, looking forward to this. Um, well, I, I grew up in a sort of nominally Christian home and uh, learned basic, sort of basic Christian worldview and and uh, was uh, gave a profession of faith early on and was baptized at the age of 10, but didn't really start growing in my faith and start repenting of my sins while simultaneously gaining a sort of hunger for the Bible uh, until I was, I think it was really when I was 15. And um, upon entering into college, I started having a lot more questions and at that time, I started becoming more and more interested in, in theology, the Bible, and philosophy. So I started dabbling in philosophy then. And I had a sort of um, a mentor then, a Baptist pastor. It was around that time that I sort of transitioned from my sort of charismatic or Pentecostal roots to a more Baptistic um, world. And uh, so, um, so, yeah, I became really interested in Bible and philosophy and went on to a small Baptist school in St. Louis studying those subjects uh, early on. And um, and eventually I, I made my way to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where I continued uh, studying theology and a little bit of philosophy there uh, and uh, Bible. And, and uh, so I think it was 
really in um, my years at Southern Seminary, where I became more and more interested in questions about the human being. So um, obviously we have, if you're a seminary student, a student you, everyone takes um, systematic theology too, right? So in systematic theology too, you get exposed to some of the, some of the topics in theological anthropology. So anthropology, theological anthropology is the study of the human being. What does it mean to be a human in a theological context? And particularly, so in any systematic theology would typically begin with the doctrine of God, and then you would move into God in relation to his creation. And in this case, particularly his human creation. So what does it mean to be a human in relation to God? And those really began to fascinate me in Southern, uh, while I was at Southern. And simultaneously, I was really sort of developing my own uh, theological method during that time, still interested in philosophy. And that's what really got me interested in uh, what's called analytic theology, which you guys have talked about on this show already. And uh, so analytic theology is, you might say it's basically systematic theology, the, the sort of the structured sort of organization of doctrine. Um, but analytic theology is distinct, in, minimally, at least in this way, in that it's... Uh, it's um, doing systematic theology from the perspective, utilizing the tools of analytic philosophy and utilizing the literature of analytic philosophy, uh, which includes the dispositions, values, and virtues that are found in analytic philosophy. Um, so uh, that's what I was really interested in. And uh, when I started getting a hold of Oliver Crisp, and I started reading him, I was like, this is what I want to do. And this is how I want to write too. So um, uh, while studying at uh, the University of Bristol under Oliver Crisp, I, I was really working on what's called what, I, what I've been calling analytic theological anthropology with a particular interest in uh, the soul, uh, where human beings are ensouled beings. Uh, and um, I recently published uh, uh, an introduction to the subject of theological anthropology from a broadly analytic perspective called An Introduction to Theological Anthropology, Humans, Both Creaturely and Divine, uh, put out by Baker Academic. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of the origin stories of how I became interested in these um, these broader topics in theological anthropology. And so um, there's still a lot there uh, that's uh, needing to be fleshed out and explored in more detail. Yeah. That's good stuff. I know I've got the one you edited, the Ashgate Research Companion to Theological Anthropology, and I've really oh, enjoyed that. Oh, good. Um, good to But uh, I want to get a copy of all of the new stuff that you've got coming out, um, not just on on substance dualism and theological anthropology, but I think I was looking at your CV, and you've got this like re-envisioning reform theology and some other stuff in the works that sound yeah. really interesting. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're uh, we got a few things coming out on the atonement and on uh, beatific vision. Yeah, so yeah, good stuff. I good think stuff. I know we're going to be talking about the beatific vision in a future episode with with you and Ryan. Good. So I'm I'm excited about that. But we want to talk about substance dualism here. So excellent for our listeners. I mean, we've got a broad spectrum of listeners. We have some people who um, are more into Atlantic theology, and they're going to know what substance dualism is. We've got others who are more into confessional type theology aspects, and they might know what substance dualism is. Um, and then we have another bucket that probably have no idea what substance dualism is. So before we jump in, I think it's helpful just to kind of give a baseline definition for what exactly it is we're talking about. 
Yeah, sure. So uh, substance dualism is the idea that basically that I am comprised of two substances. So if you think about um, the study of uh, metaphysics or the study of being, in particular, the study of personal being or personal ontology, as philosophers would call it, uh, there's the, the world is comprised of um, many philosophers would say substances, properties, events, and things like that, depending on there's lots of complicated ways to carve up the world, but most philosophers would say there's something like there's, there's properties, which properties are universally exemplifiable things uh, that, uh, so if you have the, the, the color uh, blonde, if uh, two people can have blonde hair, uh, they can both instantiate the property of blonde in, in their body. Um, so that would be an example of a property. A property is a universal thing that can be instantiated more than one countable thing. A substance is a countable thing. Uh, and many, many take substances to, um, to be things that are independent, that exist in some way independent. They are not dependent on something else for their existence, like, like, um, like properties are, uh, for, um, for color to be, uh, instantiated, it has to exist in a thing. And so things are substances that we count. And so on substance dualism, I just am my, um, I just am two substances that comprise me, basically speaking. So, uh, so I am a soul and body, or a soul body compound of some sort, um, and my soul is a property bearer, as my body is a property bearer, and they each have their own sort of intrinsic sort of unity uh, themselves, um, and they they instantiate different kinds of properties. Um, so. Uh, that's probably more of a Cartesian understanding of substance dualism. There are other versions of substance dualism. Um, so our Cartesian view would just say that I am my soul, strictly speaking, or I'm identical to my soul and I'm identical to my soul, but I have a body or I'm, I'm attached to my body in some form or fashion. So Richard Swinburne qualifies that a little bit and says, he's basically a Cartesian. He would base, he would say something like, um, the essential core part of who I am is my soul. So if I'm going to continue existing, well, I would need my soul to continue existing. There are other versions of substance dualism out there. Even some Thomists, um, following Thomas Aquinas, would would call themselves substance dualists. Many would not, obviously. Uh, uh, some would say that's that's uh, that's a, a bogus way to um, sort of. D uh, define Thomas, but uh, some would call themselves substance dualists, and they would say something like, um, following Aristotle, they would say something like, yeah, there's a body, and the body is, is this matter that's informed by some sort of formal principle. And when they're formed, there are, logically speaking at least, conceptually, even modally speaking, there are two distinct kinds of substances. Um, the informing principle, which is the, the, the material principle or the soulish principle, as well as the matter that makes up the body. So you might think of like, for example, a marble statue. Um, marble uh, is the sort of the, the, um, the matter and the marble statue is, is the thing that's, in, that's informed by some sort of principle that makes it what it is. Uh, so... Um, that would be an example. Anyway, some would try to, uh, uh, or some would articulate Thomas as a substance dualist. And if there is any potential success in Thomism, 
then um, I think Thomas has to be a substance dualist. Um, but we'll get into that, and I'm sure, as we discuss this more. Yeah. What would you what would you say are the the main arguments in favor of substance dualism? And I want us to look at both you know philosophical arguments and also maybe some scriptural arguments. But I guess we can just start with um, the philosophical arguments at this point. What would you say are are the best arguments in its favor? Yeah, yeah. So um, the best arguments would include uh, what's called the modal argument, maybe um, the muriological argument from replacement the simple argument and an argument that I've been actually developing. Um, I haven't come up with a name for it, but it would be called something like a soul particularity argument. And um, this is, this is where I really get into a, a defense of sort of a more Cartesian version of substance dualism. Um, so um, we could take a modal argument uh, Charles Talifer is famous for developing a version of the modal argument, uh, as is Richard Swinburne. And I think uh, I think there's something compelling about the modal argument, and it certainly is compatible with some um, religious ideas or, or a, at least a theological argument from um, the disembodied state. And we could talk about that in a moment. Um, that would be a more theological argument. But Charles Talifer puts forward a, a kind of modal argument for um, the, the existence of um, persons as soul body compounds. And he would say he would say something like this. One, if I, I am a very I, if I am the very same thing as my body, then whatever is true of me is also true of my body. Two, but my body may survive without me. It may, for example, become a corpse. And we have common sense arguments that suggest that uh, at some point our bodies will become corpses, right? Um, uh, and I may survive without my body. Maybe I would exist with a new body or with a, uh, in a disembodied state without a body. Three, therefore, I am not the very same thing as my body. So Talifer's working from... Um, um, his his sort of um, common sense. Uh, he's working from his common sense and, and and intuitions about what is both possible and what is actual, and so he he's thinking about um, the distinction between the soul and the body as uh, as 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 a conceivable possibility, and the way that he gets at what is conceivably possible is by way of. Um, knowing what is actual in his, at least in his experiences of, of what is actual about himself. And so there are these, um, uh, uh, there's this sort of modal reasoning that's taking place where he's reasoning from what is actual and his experiences to what, what is conceivably possible from his experiences. So that would be an example of the modal argument. And uh, I, I'm open to that. I'm sympath I'm sympathetic to that sort of argument, but I think probably something like uh, the argument from muriological replacement, um, uh, muriological replacement of uh, of parts. I think something like this is probably the better place to start. If we think about our own experiences about ourselves, um, think of any garden variety object. In our uh, in and around our body, 
is there any garden variety object that we can point to and say, hey, that's that's me? And I think most of us would say, no. I mean, uh, if I look at my hand, I say, well, that's that's not me. Yeah. It's a part of me, but it's not me, right? I can cut off my hand. Um, I wouldn't do that, but uh, I could cut off my hand and it would no longer be a part of me at that point. It would be something something else. Um, and we could look at other parts of our body and we would have similar intuitions about other parts of our body. There is no obvious part of my body that uh, makes up me that that uh, that is that is even essential to me. I could lose the parts of my body uh, or at least most parts of my body. Um, and I would still remain me. Um, I could even lose half of my body. And we have examples of this in history where people, people go to war and they lose basically half of their body, yet they still uh, remain the self-same persons that exist in and through time, at a time and across time. And, uh, and so we could speed up the process and the same intuition would still apply there. Um, so um it 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 so it seems to me that uh I am something other than my body or the parts of my body and uh well we could talk about intuitions about like um well maybe I just am the whole of my body or I'm a biological organism or an animal and I um I think yeah we could talk about that um but I think uh, my intuition is, is that I am not a complex of parts, but my body is a complex of parts. Um, so therefore, I'm not my body. Right. If I'm not a complex, but my body is a complex of parts, then I'm not my body. That would be something like the simple argument that I think naturally follows from this sort of idea of, of muriological replacement, that we can replace um, the various parts of our body yet. I remain the same thing. And there's something arguably about me. And this is, this is an intuition that I'm re I'm really interested in lately. There's something about um, not my, not my body or the parts of my body. Uh, but there's still something about me that makes me me. And that sufficiently explains who I am. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, I think uh, if it's not, my body or the parts of my body, then it's something else. And I would say it's something, something like a soul or a mind, something that makes me me, but that mind or soul is not a generic. It's not like it's, it's comprised of a set of properties or a bundle of properties. Um, it's, it's something that can't be carved up. So this basic intuition that uh, Rene Descartes had that we can't conceive of half of a soul let that seems right. And there's all kinds of thought experiments that seem to motivate that sort of that sort of idea. I can't conceive of half of my soul being cut up into cut up cut in half or cut up into parts like my body. My my soul's just something different than my body. And uh my soul is is it seems to me is my soul is what makes me me. Uh that carries a, a me along in time and at a time and across time. So I, I would say those would be uh, positive philosophical arguments that can be taken up and developed in favor of this view called substance dualism, or at least in favor of this minimalist sort of 
thesis, a Cartesian thesis, that I am my soul, or the soul is the essential core of who I am that carries along my personal identity. So those would be positive reasons why we should be, positive philosophical reasons why we should be substance dualists. So when it comes to, I guess, theological reasons, from what I've read, it seems everybody goes to John Cooper and his book, which basically, from my understanding, says if there is an intermediate state, you have to be a dualist of some sort. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. So, yeah, let's jump in to that. Uh, I think all those philosophical arguments support the doctrine that there is a disembodied intermediate state. And I think uh, if you're going to if you're going to affirm the disembodied intermediate state, then you need to be a substance dualist. Um, so the doctrine of the disembodied intermediate state, John Cooper's work is the famous work that has defended this thesis in the biblical, sort of dealing with some of the biblical literature on that. And he argues, yeah, something like, um, well, uh, taking a lot of biblical data out there, the biblical data just seems to support this idea that when my body or the material aggregate me uh, of me, when it dies, well, commonsensically, we see bodies in the grave and they're not alive. There's something different about them. They're, they're corpses, as, as, as Talifer would say earlier. There's something else. And he would say, well, <clears throat> if um, so, there's, there's, there's a few different options Cooper raises in his book. He says there's either the um, what's called the extinction and recreation view that I just sort of go out of existence. And then um, at the resurrection, physical resurrection, I come back into existence, which is basically just I'm recreated again. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm brought back in, brought back to life again. There's also the uh, immediate resurrection view, which several people have 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 brought up, um, and it's becoming a more prominent theory in 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 some of the theological literature. And it just says something like, um, uh, "As soon as my body dies, um, I am immediately resurrected." And some would argue that there is some sort of overlap in time, such that this time that I'm existing in this plane of existence right now, uh, the other time in, in, in the eschaton somehow overlaps with it such that when my body dies, I am literally immediately resurrected. So there is no time gap or lapse between my body dying and my becoming again, right? So somebody like J.T. Turner in his book on the resurrection of the dead raised, puts forward this sort of thesis. Um, so that's an interesting thesis. I think it has problems. Um, uh, you know, I'd like to say it's confusing. So yes. What? I, yeah. I, I've told him that, so I don't feel bad saying that. No, that's, that's okay. <laughs> I've told him that too. And we're friends. We're friends. Yeah. So um, he, he would say I'm confused on all sorts of other things. And that's, <laughs> that's fine. Uh, but so John Cooper in his book, Body, Soul, and Life Everlasting, which is like the, it's like the go-to book when you're, when you're having these discussions about the biblical data. He makes the argument that uh, when we take all the biblical data together, it seems to yield this idea that that there that there is an afterlife and there's this initial state between physical death and physical resurrection called the intermediate state. And so that's the view that he defends from the biblical material in his book. And I think it's the I think it's the right view. 
And so if it is the right view, then philosophically, it seems to require substance dualism or something like substance dualism, at least this idea that there is an immaterial part to us or that makes us us that is able to persist and is different from the myriological aggregate we call the body. And so I think, um, I think, uh, I think John Cooper does a great job in his book dealing with a lot of the biblical material. Although there's a new book out um, from an Old Testament scholar uh, named Richard Steiner. It's an excellent book where he, he gives a positive defense for what it actually ends up being a kind of Cartesian substance dualism. And he says, look, when we look at the Old Testament data, um, particularly when we look at um, passages uh, that, that, that use the word nephesh, um, Ezekiel 13 in particular, he says, this necessarily yields something like a disembodied soul existence. And the Old Testament is, despite what many Old Testament scholars or biblical scholars have been saying in recent literature, the Old Testament has or yields a pretty clear view that there is a disembodied state of existence after uh, physical death. And so he exegetes um, Ezekiel 13, and he he gives a pretty persuasive case that this was not only in the worldview of the Hebrews, but it is something that is part and parcel of the redemptive program or in, in redemptive history that is that is that is essential to God's redemption of human beings. And so I think um, I think there's a very strong biblical case to be made for the disembodied intermediate state. And if that's right, then substance dualism or something like substance dualism is true. Yeah. And it, it seems to me, I, I think if I were to ask normal people on the street, what do they think about, you know, the nature of the human person? I would bet that more people than not would say, would the way they would describe it would be something similar to substance dualism. They would think that they had a soul. I mean, I think before I studied anything, that was my natural disposition, having no clue about all the debates that go on. uh, It was just, I thought I had a soul. It was, I don't know if I was taught that it was just, or that was just my natural intuition Yeah, that was there. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, no, I think it's the common sense view that uh, uh, without, without any tutoring, we commonsensically make a distinction between who I am and what my body and, and my body. Um, I think my, my, um, my daughter who's 16 months old, um, well, I'm going to start, I'm going to start playing, um, uh, or using some experiments with her to see if, if she has dualist intuitions or not. I think she already has dualist intuitions (laughs) based upon how she looks at her hands and things. And she, (laughs) which is, uh, it's funny, but it's uh, it, there's a psychologist uh, Bloom, um, uh, uh, Bloom, Bloom, Daniel, what's his first name? Dan- Daniel Bloom. Uh, he he's recently developed um, various psychological arguments that uh, we are intuitive dualists, and so psychologically, anytime we look at the various parts of our body, we make an intuitive distinction between who I am and who my body is. Um, even if there's a, is there's an intimate functional relationship between the two, we still make an intuitive distinction that there are two. Um, and, uh, 
and that's cashed out in how we treat the various parts of our body, how we examine the parts of our body. Um, we, we just make a distinction that there is something uh, that, that, that our body is something other than who we are or who I am. Um, and I think, yeah, so I agree totally. I think that's the intuitive view. And I think it's probably the view that is at least um, commonly held in, in many of the major religions uh, throughout history. Uh, and, um, and for those, those religious views that affirm that there is a God that exists outside of the physical realm or, or at least, um, exists uh, in a transcendent well way from the physical realm, uh, coupled with the idea that there's an afterlife, if they affirm those cluster of views and Bloom talks about this in one of his, um, articles on religion. If they affirm those cluster of views, then they affirm something like substance dualism mm -hmm. or a Cartesianism. That's the natural view. So before I, I ask you about why people have disagreed with substance dualism and said, you know, I want to take another view. Can you walk us through potentially any confessional requirements when it comes to theological anthropology? Are, are there any creeds or confessions out there that are going to give us some guardrails on what we have to believe uh, when it comes to this topic? Yeah. 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 That's a good question. So um, uh, so if, if you're, if you're coming at this anthropological discussion from a dogmatic tradition um, we, we would define dogma as something that um has a higher degree of authority than, say, other uh, doctrinal theological propositions. So, um, for example, you might, I mean, you might take it that there are various eschatological views about the future or the millennium, right? Mm -hmm. Whether you're, if you've heard of postmillennialism, that um, uh, uh, Christ is going to come back after uh, um, after um, this 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 period where the church sort of takes over the world, right? Or you hold to something like uh, pre-trib rapture, that there's going to be this tribulation period before the millennial reign of Christ when Christ comes back. And before that period, he's going to rapture up his church, right? We would say, I think most people would say those are theological views that are interesting and imp even important because they're going to impact how we view society and things like that. But we wouldn't hold to those as being, having some sort of dogmatic status, right? They don't, yeah. they don't, they don't, um, require belief, belief um, by individuals. They're not like central to the redemptive story in some way. And, but it seems to me that when we look at the anthropological story in various creedal, um, they may be implicit in the creedal statements, I think, but uh, certainly in the catechetical and confessional statements that we have, there is an overwhelming belief from the wider Catholic and Reformed theological traditions in a belief in the soul and a belief in the disembodied intermediate state. So this is, so for those who are trying to be revisionist about this particular doctrine, I think, um, I think they're, 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 they will have to swim upstream because this, this is, this is uh, the intermediate state is I would I would suggest is a dogmatically held belief about anthropology within church tradition. So let me just give I can just give some examples. Um, the Roman Catholic Catechism, 
whether you give it any status or not, is very clear that there there is some sort of immaterial principle, and that immaterial principle, the soul or substance or whatever you want to call it, is an image of God, and it it can persist in the disembodied state. The Catechism is very clear about that. There's this uh, this collection of Reformed theological statements in what's called the Leiden Synopsis, which is recognized by many as an authoritative summary of the Reformed theological tradition. And when you look at the anthropo- anthropological data in the Leiden Synopsis, it's utterly clear across the Reformed theological confessional um, uh, uh, data that the Reformed theological tradition affirms with one voice that we are sold or in sold bodies. Um, and in many of the confessions, it comes very close, if not explicitly stating something uh, like substance dualism um, and, and the view that we, we exist without, um, without our bodies, at least during a, this sort of intermediate state. Um, so the Westminster Confession uh, states something like the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, have an immortal subsistence immediately return to God who gave them. So the Westminster Confession states it very clearly, and the way that it, the the language that it use, uses is um, reflective of substance dualism. I mean, West, the Westminster Confession is pretty clearly affirming a substance dualist view of, of humanity. Um, the great reform theologian, Charles Hodge, um, which is, his view is represented in the Westminster Confession, as well as a whole host of reformed confessional statements. Charles Hodge affirms um, the tradition when he summarizes it, and he says, quote, as all Christians believe in the resurrection of the body and the future judgment, they all believe in an intermediate state. It's not, therefore, the fact of the intermediate state, but it's the nature and diversity of opinion that exists among Christians. So Charles Hodge, a um, you might consider him to be at least a theological authority when he's summarizing um, the Reformed tradition. Uh, yeah. He affirms that we are souls and that those souls exist in in this sort of disembodied state. Okay, so go ahead, Brandon. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, you can go ahead. I was just going to ask him about arguments against substance. I mean, I do have a question I want to ask later, but I think it may fit better. Um, yeah, something I guess we're, we're going to talk about later. Then we can jump on. Like, why is it that some people are arguing against substance dualism? I think. Um, two of the ones that I, I've seen that are relatively recent would be J.T. Turner. I think Joshua Mugg wrote with him on basically saying uh, you shouldn't be a substance dualist if you believe in the bodily resurrection. And then um, Brandon mentioned an article by Luke Stamps, yeah. which basically, I guess, argues if if you're a Cartesian substance dualist of sorts, um, you might fall into Nestorianism. Um, And I know there's obviously other philosophical objections that you can touch on if you want. Um, But I I personally am kind of curious on those two, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. So maybe we should take the resurrection objection first. Yeah. um, Because I think it's the more common one against substance dualism, particularly against Cartesianism. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So uh, JT in, in several places has made 
something like this argument. He would say something like, um, so JT is affirming that um, human beings, individual human beings are basically animals or biological organisms construed along the lines of a kind of hylomorphism that, mm -hmm. um, that there, that there, that there is, um, there are these, uh, there, there are these dualistic principles at work in, 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 in human nature, individual human natures, such that um, I, I am some sort of like matter form composite. And, but those matter form, uh, the matter and form together are essential uh, principles or ingredients, you might say, to, to who I am as, a, as, as an individual animal, human animal, that is, right? So um, he certainly, he wouldn't go as far as affirm, well, I don't think he would go as far, yeah, he wouldn't call his view a substance dualist view, but he he would he would say that there are um, these um, distinct principles or ingredients at work in human nature, and um, and uh, I think for various so he has various philosophical reasons for that, but he also has this big theological driving concern in his project, and that is that uh, the physical resurrection seems to uh, indicate or yield this holistic conception of, of human beings as, as certain kinds of bodies, right? Very complex animal bodies, right? Human animal bodies, but nonetheless, uh, complex animal, uh, uh, biological organisms. And, um, and our, so our body as a matter form composite is necessary and essential to, to, to who I am, uh, to my being me, and for 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 my mental capacities to function rightly, I need the the material in which the uh, the form is instantiated. Right, those ingredients are necessary and essential to who I am. And so he, when he looks at the biblical text and he reads the text, he he seems to think that eschatologically, all that uh, what what is what is going on is is that. Um, we die, and what's so marvelous about the hope of the Christian is that we will be resurrected again once we die. And so, uh, a substance dualism view that that bifurcates between the two two parts. There's this big sort of intuition in the background. Well, why does uh, why does a Cartesian or a substance dualist need the res physical resurrection if they exist in the disembodied intermediate state, right? Why do they need a physical resurrection? Isn't the hope of of the Cartesian that uh, well they'll exist with without the body? They'll be able to continue on just hunky dory without without any problems, right? So why do they need the body? Um, so I think um, I think there's a few ways to respond to this as a substance dualist. Um, one is to say this, and, and some Thomist interpreters of the intermediate state have offered up this, this sort of reason, which I think actually applies quite well to a Cartesian view. It's the idea that um, during the disembodied inter intermediate state, I objectively or essentially uh, uh, have a vision of God. I can see God, what's called traditionally the beatific vision. So this is, 
This is Thomas Aquinas's interpretation of Second Corinthians five one to ten in his his uh, his commentary, and he says that once we die, the the object uh, of 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 glory is the beholding of God in His nature, and that's what we're looking forward to. That's the hope. So some Thomist interpreters would say, yes, that's true, objectively and essentially, but they would make a distinction between that and uh, being a complete soul body composite. And they would say at the physical resurrection, what we gain is something subjective or phenomenological. So while during the intermediate state, I behold the nature of God, I can, I can have a, objectively speaking, I have a vision of God. I don't subjectively or phenomenally experience um, the object of my vision completely or wholly without my body. So I still need my body, still need my body in the resurrection. So that would be one response as to why the physical resurrection is still important. Another response, and I think many people would find this more satisfying, the disembodied state is of is a diminished state of existence, right? So when we get physically resurrected, um, that's the better state of existence. So some would say the beatific vision itself doesn't occur until the physical resurrection. So it's not occurring during the disembodied state at all. So that would be one reason why we would say, yeah, the physical resurrection is still the hope of the Christian because at that state, we will experience the beatific vision. There's a modified view in there, which I, I tend to hold to, and it, it just is that, well, the disembodied state is a diminished state in some sense um, because our minds are, are, are not flourishing or not functionally uh, complete. They don't function um, in the highest or, 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 or most... Um, um, satisfactory way without yeah. without their neural substrate sort of functionally um, holding holding them up or helping the, the mind uh, experience the world. So um, I would say that during the disembodied intermediate state, we um, as saints, we do go to be in the presence of God, like uh, Thomas Aquinas says, and um, that the beatific vision begins but it's not complete until the physical resurrection. It's in, yeah, that makes sense. It's incomplete. Yeah. So, um, if you don't mind, I would like you to take a moment to address the uh, Nestorianism objection. So, basically, Nestorianism is an ancient heresy that says that in the incarnate Christ there are two persons, not one. And if a a soul, uh, if I if I am, you know, my soul and Christ. Uh, well, the, the divine son is already a person, and then he assumes a human soul, which would mean he's assuming now a second human person. This is what it sounds like would be inevitable on the Cartesian view. So how do how would a Cartesian dualist get around this charge of Nestorianism? Yeah, good. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, so Luke Stamps has recently raised this objection to a sort of substance dualist view, or Cartesian view at least. And um, what's, 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 what's strikingly um, challenging uh, uh, for Cartesianism um, is, is that um, 
that the, the, the soul just is the personality or the particularity of, of the person, right? So if you take a different anthropology, philosophical anthropology altogether, like you take, um, you take hylomorphism and you take it that the distinct particularity or the distinct personality is the composite of the, the, the matter and form together, right? Um, such that the form itself provides the generalities and the determinables or what you might call the um, some of the structural aspects of the human being, but it itself is not the carrier of personal identity, then it, it makes a lot more sense on um, the incarnation that the Lagos, the second person of the Trinity, could assume a human nature, namely, or by assuming a, a, a matter form compound, right? Uh, and 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 because those are um, distinct uh, structural principles that um, that they that themselves at least um, without being united they 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 don't carry with them a distinct personality. Arguably, that's the sort of that's the sort of um, advantage some like Luke Stamps would say that hylomorphism or Thomism has over Cartesianism. That's interesting. Um, yeah. Um, I think that needs to be explored further. Uh, I'm not sure if the hylomorphist can get out of the problem as easily as they think they can, but intuitively, I think when people read that case, they're like, yeah, on Cartesianism, there's something else that's going on. If the person just is the soul, right? The person is strictly identical to the soul. Then when the, the Logos, second person, the Trinity assumes a soul and body, well, then he's assuming a new person, right? Yeah. And I don't remember, uh, I remember in a class with Dr. Greg Welty at, at, at Southeastern, we were talking about this issue and it seemed like he said that that Swinburne, and I could be wrong about this, I, maybe I'm not remembering it correctly, but that Swinburne basically is a Cartesian for all of us. But then when he wants to talk about Christ, he moves into more like a holomorphous direction, which seems pretty unsatisfying and ad hoc to me. But I, I don't know of any other way to really get around it if you do think that like that, that objection is, is a solid objection. It seems like you do just have to maybe move things around a little bit different for Christ yeah. as, you know, I mean, he is unique. I mean, we, obviously we do want to maintain that. So I, I just didn't know if you had any other, um, there's, yeah, there's two responses. There's two responses. And, uh, I can't remember Swinburne's exactly. Um, the first one is, uh, let's go with the first one, which is simpler, but it, it comes off and it, it's going to sound ad hoc, but, uh, Brian Leftow and Oliver Crisp have, have affirmed it. Oliver Crisp in his book, Divinity and uh, Humanity, from what I recall correctly, he, he affirms this or something close to it. He says, well, um, God can intervene. And uh, when the, the second person of the Trinity assumes a human nature, which, uh, which uh, Crisp interprets, at least the most natural interpretation of Chalcedon is that he... In, he, he assumes a soul-body compound, a sort of substance-dualist compound, so a soul and a body. 
um, or a reasonable soul, as, as Chalcedon puts it. And so uh, for all, um, for Crisp, he, he says that um, in virtue of the fact that God is intervening in some way, um, the, the second person of the Trinity can just assume a soul, a substantial, concrete, substantial soul, and uh, provide the personalized or particularized feature to that soul without it becoming a distinct kind of soul, right? So without it becoming a personalized soul, he just assumes it. And when he assumes it, he provides the particularity for that soul. So that would be a sort of... Um, uh, and Brian Leftow says something else like this, but that sounds ad hoc because you're having to say that, well, on every other case of Cartesianism, mm -hmm. the person just right. is the soul. In this one exception, which the Cartesian may say, well, it's the incarnation. So what? There's an exception. Um, our, view, <laughs> our view is better on every in every other case. OK, so we have to accept this ad hoc explanation. Who cares? Um, in this one exception. Uh, God intervenes and he makes it such that the soul is only personalized by the second person of the Trinity. Right. So that's, that sounds probably ad hoc. Okay. There's another solution, maybe. And uh, Jonathan Chan in the Ashgate companion to theological anthropology, he, he offers up this Cartesian solution. He says, what we need to do is, um, even if we look at Chalcedon and Chalcedon gives this sort of picture of humanity that humans are soul body compounds, which means that they are concrete substantial holes or they have two concrete substantial holes. Uh, Chan says, um, well, that's a concretist view and it clearly runs into this sort of problem and it leans toward Nestorianism as we've said before. So he says, well, look, uh, when it comes to the incarnation, what we need to do is we need to assume or uh, 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 work out a, an abstractist Cartesian understanding of human nature. And an abstractist, and th this this is a really abstract discussion, obviously. Um, <laughs> no pun intended. This is an abstract discussion where we're talking about different metaphysical ways of carving up natures. So there's the concretist way, which is the way we've been thinking about, and which is probably the most intuitive way to read Chalcedon. And then there's what's called the abstractist way. Concretist way begins with um, concrete parts or holes as, uh, as we're defining natures. That's where we begin. The abstractist, on the other hand, begins in talking about natures, and particularly human nature, in terms of abstract properties first. So if you take it that um, we should define human nature as an abstract property first, before we start talking about the concrete holes, then you might say that, um, that uh, on an abstractist view, a human nature just is a rational soul, which means a set of rational properties and capacities that has some sort of unique relationship to a body or to matter. If you take that view, then uh, Jonathan Chan says, well, a Cartesian understanding of the incarnation can work without being ad hoc at all. So what is the Logos, second person of the Trinity, doing? 
Well, he's assuming a body, and by assuming a body and entering into a particular kind of human relation, he has a, a set of mental properties or faculties in virtue of the relationship to that body. And so by assuming a certain kind of propertied relationship with the matter or the body, uh, uh, which comes with it, this set of mental capacities that are descriptive of human nature, um, well, uh, we can make, as a Cartesian, we can make sense of the incarnation along those lines. Sure. So that would be an abstractist Cartesian view. So, um, so Christ still has what, uh, at least on an abstractist understanding of human nature, he still has what is, um, uh, he still has the necessary and essential features of, of what it means to be a human mind that's in relation to a human body. And so on that abstractist account, Cartesian can, can make sense of the incarnation without being ad hoc. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think, I think we could push more on any of these and, and talk more about them. Um, but I do want to wrap things up a little bit. And before I do, uh, for the listeners who, who want to follow your work and, or see what you're push, putting out, do you have like a website or anything that they can follow or check on uh, to keep up with you? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I do. Uh, and it's not a very intuitive website address <laughs> yet. Soon it will be joshuarferris.com. But it's not that right now. I do have an, I do so I do have um, an academia website. Uh, so if you go to it's not the best website, but if you go to academia and you type in my name Joshua Ryan Ferris, I have a page there with most of my works up online. Um, so that's um, that's one page that you can go to, certainly for my work. Um, let's see. Uh, right now, I think that's uh, basically, I think that's it right now. Okay. But I should have a website up soon, joshuarferris.com. Perfect. Well, we will definitely recommend our listeners to check that out, as well as just type your name into Amazon and see the 15 books that come up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and check those out as well. I think I found this one uh, that I've got in my house, the Theological Anthropology Research Companion. Uh, to be very helpful and some, have some really uh, good essays. Excellent. So thank you. I'm looking forward to the new stuff that you've got coming out as well. I think they're all some really interesting topics. Excellent. Um, thank you. So thanks for joining us and talking to us about this topic. Uh, I think it's fascinating, obviously. Um, and I think we could talk about it for probably a couple hours, but I will spare our listeners because they, uh, I don't think they expect three hour episodes from us. Right. So maybe one time we will have that long of an episode and see what, see what happens. I think Brandon will probably say no. Um, anyway, <laughs> for those who've been listening, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist confessional podcast that exists. And we thank you for tuning in.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.